It's weird to say Trump is good for my business, you know, but I would choose world peace and a job at Starbucks for not Donald Trump. Welcome to Majority Minority, a podcast about people of color changing the face of Washington. I'm Frank Ordonez, and I cover the White House for the 30 news outlets that together make up McClatchy. And I'm Bill Douglas, and I cover Congress for McClatchy. Today, we're joined by W. Kamau Bell, Emmy Award-winning host of CNN's United Shades of America and co-host of the podcast Politically Reactive. He joined us to talk about being a socio-political comedian and a dad. You know, one day I had the news on and she looked at the TV and go, are they still trying to figure out why Donald Trump is the president? Wow. And I had no idea that she was even aware that we were trying to do that. And I was like, yes, they are. (laughs) You know, you got any thoughts? She said the Russians. uh... (laughs) It was a nice intro to a conversation about family and how they don't shy away from talking about race and color in the household. Oh, yeah. And also he was coming off a, a summer where he wants to keep people woke on problems within the Trump administration on matters of race and other things. You know, these times were made for him and he's taking full advantage of it. Every conversation that I have, every conversation people want to have with me, like I'll go on podcasts about like things that have nothing to do with Trump and they go, well, before we get started, let's talk about this. Well, before we get started, let's talk about Trump. (laughs) (laughs) So Trump in Charlottesville. Uh, Quickly, what was your take on the protest? Quickly, my take on the protest is standard operating practice for America. My take on his response. You you had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody wants to say that, but I'll say it right now. Tone deaf, but not tone deaf than maybe politicians in the history of this country, just more tone deaf than recent politicians. This issue that Charlottesville's brought up, are we at a turning point in any way? I mean, I, you know, it's funny because some people feel like things have sort of like come to some new place. And I feel like amongst me and a lot of people I talk to, they're like, this has been here the whole time. It's just being exposed in a different way. The police response in Charlottesville isn't significantly different than the police response during the civil rights era, you know. So there's this thing where it's like this is how state power has worked with people who are oppressed and people who are fighting a good fight. But we're just seeing it because now we have a 24-hour news cycle and we have – and the thing that is – most frightening is that we feel like we have a president who's not at the wheel. Like He's at the golf course. He's at the wheel of his golf cart. So even with presidents that I would have disagreed with, I felt at least like they were paying attention for the most part. But you're saying it's standard operating procedure with a little added wrinkle to it, though. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just like when I was a kid, Reagan was president and I'm black. My parents are black. So, you know, that doesn't necessarily put you in big fans of Ronald Reagan camp. But there are black people who like Ronald Reagan, but they, my parents were not huge fans. But there's also a sense of like, man, this is a president unlike we've ever seen before. I don't really feel like he's really paying attention. And then I got older and then George W. Bush is president. And we're like, this is a president like we've ever seen before. I don't think. He's really... So there's a sense that like now we're at Trump. It's like, wow. This is even further along than these other people who we thought we'd never seen before. And then the question becomes, well, well what follows this? Yeah. And I think that's the sort of the, I don't want to put everything in terms of scary part, but that's the part that is the most sort of, you know, intriguing is like, it, but in a scary way, is where are we headed? <laughs> like, where is the, I mean, or where are we going to end up? Where is this going to take us? Because it feels like this is the scene in the movie where Bane has taken over Gotham City and Batman's about to come back. So you came back to die with your city. No, I came back to stop you. But uh, (laughs) that doesn't always happen in real life. So do you think the battle over the Confederate monuments, do you think that's a blip or do you think this is something that will be sustained? 
You know, there's so many things happening right now, and there's so many different areas of oppression. And, you know, I think that sometimes things sort of become the thing that we focus on. And even if we don't knock down every Confederate monument now, the next time the conversation comes up, it starts in a different place. Black Lives Matter has fundamentally changed the conversation about policing in this country. Even for people who disagree with Black Lives Matter, it means they're talking about it in a different way. Has it solved all the problems with policing? No. But the conversation will forever be in a different place because of Black Lives Matter. And it's not one conversation that gets all the monuments torn down. I mean, that's how Washington works often. You, know, you introduce a bill 16 times and, you know, eventually it just picks up momentum and it goes. Yeah. I, for me, it's like to think about like a young Martin Luther King Jr., in Selma talking about, I think we just have to stop riding the buses. That guy doesn't think necessarily that that ends up with him doing a march on Washington. Right. It's like, we have to keep raising the stakes. We got to keep re- reintroducing the conversation. We got to keep reintroducing the quote unquote bill. Work-wise, I mean, all the attention that's been focused on race, that, that's in your comedic wheelhouse. From a personal standpoint, you've got I to- I should have learned to druggle. I should have like, <laughs> 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 taken Gallagher's act. This would be a good time to break some fruit on stage. Well, you've lived in Alabama. You've lived in Boston, Chicago. You're in the Bay Area now. I mean, what's been your experiences regarding race? Everywhere I go, I'm black. <laughs> like, I think that's the- <laughs> Chronic condition. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's, it, it, it travels with you. So it's just about what does black mean in different places. When we lived in Boston, Boston is a you know, hyper-segregated city. We were in a black neighborhood. And, you know, and it was a black neighborhood that was lower on the social economic status. So you're looking at a lot of poverty with black people. When we lived in Chicago, we moved into Hyde Park, where the University of Chicago is. So it's a more racially diverse neighborhood and also a better neighborhood, but it's surrounded by black neighborhoods. And Chicago was the first place I ever felt like my blackness really was not acceptable. Like I was the, I, I got kicked out of a record store when I was like 15 because I was black in a record store. The security guy said they saw me take something. I hadn't taken anything, but he still threw me out of the store, literally like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air style into the street and told me never to come back. So that's the first time I was like, oh, this is still a thing. Like, I was sort of grown up going, oh, after the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. took that long walk and it's over. But that was the first time I was like, oh, this is still real. You're in Berkeley now, which is supposed to be a, a liberal bastion. Uh, supposed to be. What's it like there now? There's this image that Berkeley is this progressive utopia that is fueled by kale and Marxism. <laughs> and it's just not true. A Berkeley white, older, liberal is still a person who's like maybe afraid of young black people. And living out here in the Bay Area, we all know that. Oakland is being gentrified right now by young millennial tech people, some of which are of color, but they're not coming into the neighborhoods to build with the neighborhood. They're building on top of the neighborhood. So black people in Oakland are being pushed out by gentrification, just like it's happened to black people in every major city. And so we have those same problems, we have the same issues, we have the same issues of police brutality, we have the same issues of lower socioeconomic status for black people and the public school system, we have all those same issues. It's just we also have this this sort of like progressive thing that the city's supposed to be founded on. So like me and my wife went to the No Hate in the Bay rally in Oakland that sort of happened because, you know, the alt-right white supremacists, I don't know what their names are anymore, but professional racists said they were going to show up and people were afraid they were going to bring violence because they'd showed up twice before and brought violence. Me and my wife felt like we have to go. We have to sort of be out there. And especially because I live in Berkeley, it's a pretty small town and I'm a well-known figure in Berkeley. Not bragging, uh, (laughs) just saying. Just saying. So I was like, it feels important to me to show up, to be seen. All my life I've seen these pictures of the civil rights era with Martin Luther King arm in arm with other activists and celebrities. And I feel like 
the importance of that is like, oh my God, there's people here who could choose not to be here who have showed up. I mean, is it different in the different areas? I mean, you know, so much focus is on the South, and I think you've talked about this, but there obviously is racism in other parts. I mean, how is it different? It's, it's very different. Like, there's an old expression, I forget who said it, but it's like in the South, they don't care how close you get as long as you don't get too high. In the North, they don't care how high you get as long as you don't get too close. The whole idea meaning that in the South, black and white people sort of interact with each other regularly, spend a lot of time with each other, may live next door to each other, but there is a sense that like, you know, if a black guy runs for mayor, sometimes like, what is he doing? What is this uppity blah, blah, blah doing? You know, there's that sense of like, stay in your place in the South. And now my dad lives in the South and he has way overcome his place and is one of the leaders of his community in Mobile, Alabama, and is very proud of that, but also has a very stiff back. Like he he does not suffer fools gladly. And I think a lot of it's because he had to do that coming up in Mobile, Alabama. Like he had to sort of say, yes, I plan on rising. Yes, I plan on being your boss. Yes, I plan on being a leader in this community deal with it. I wouldn't describe my dad as laid back. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure he's going to listen to this, and it'll be interesting to see what he thinks about that. You've got a daughter who's starting kindergarten. Starting first grade. Actually, today was her first day of first grade. Oh, that's awesome. My daughter just started first grade, too. Congratulations. Thank you, yeah. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Franco. (laughs) Um, How do you explain what's going on to her? How do you explain the state of race to her? I mean, does she understand what's going on now? She understands more than I realized she understood because there have been, she's certainly, you know, we have the news on a lot in the house and she's around it. But it's a lot of it she's picked up without me even realizing where she's picked it up during the campaign. Just out of nowhere, she said, I don't like Donald Trump's rules. And I was like, well, I don't know where you got that from, but I don't like his rules either. <laughs> like, that's a pretty dead on analysis. We're like in the same boat. I mean, my daughter just started first grade. She says certain things that she's picked up from school. And sometimes she'll say certain things. That I'm like, well, that's not such an objective standpoint. Uh, when, when <laughs> Luckily, in my house, we don't worry about objective standpoints. We're, we're a subjective household. <laughs> I'm sort of amazed that some of America's greatest and most sort of pressing issues of the day somehow filtered their way down to her without me sort of standing in front of her going, let's talk about Trump for 10 minutes. So for me, it's like it's important to give your kids more information than you think they can handle because they can probably handle a lot more than you think they can. And at the point that they can't handle it, they will clearly say, I don't understand. They don't have any sort of like ego around. I don't want to look stupid. It's like, you know, they go, I don't understand. What do you tell her when you go to Alabama for vacation? And I mean, I imagine you've seen some different kinds of flags down there. Yeah, yeah, I've seen some different kind of flags down there. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing about my kid. She's not going to Alabama. She's going to her granddad's house, you know. My daughter the other day was like talking about like every place she's been in her life. And she's like, I've been to New York. I've been to Puerto Rico. I've been to Scotland. I've been to Alabama. And to her, it's all just different places. Does race come up, though, in your conversations with her, whether it's about the South or in other in other areas? The first thing that happens is that color came up. Like she started talking about what her color was before we had even like sort of had a race conversation. Now, a lot of that probably came because we read books to her from a very young age about you know, mixed race families and black families. So she knew there was people at different shades. But of course, we read books that were like, and that's good. <laughs> you know, we, we didn't read the, There's books that you could read that would say the other thing, I'm pretty sure. But she at one point realized that after, because a book was called My Peanut Butter Baby Brother, that she realized she was peanut butter color. Hmm. And then at some point she said, and I was chocolate colored and mama was oatmeal colored, <laughs> which <laughs> nobody wants to be oatmeal colored. But she sort of realized the color part of it. And then at that point, we introduced the race part of it. We started reading books about race. And so she understands that she's half mom and half dad, 
she's black, but she also understands that she's mixed, but she understands she can be both those things. I can be mixed and I can be black, but she still doesn't really necessarily understand that black is about more than the shade you are because her sister is much lighter and much closer to her mom's color. And at one point I said something about us all being black people. And she looked at me like, no, no, no. And pointed at Juno like, Juno's not black (laughs) because Juno's much lighter. And I laughed and laughed and laughed. (laughs) And, and, you know, and sort of said, no, we're still all black people. Juno's with us. And so that's when you sort of realize none of this makes any sense. You talk a lot about awkward conversations in the work you do. It seems like you have some awkward conversations at home. I mean, you know, it's it's. I feel like the topic is awkward, but the conversation is easy if you don't approach it in an awkward way. So how does that kind of shape what you do on United Shades of America? The thing about United Shades of America is that it comes from a place of like, I am going to places that I've either never been to before or never been to in this way. So like, I'd never been to Puerto Rico, so everything to me is like, whoa, what's this? How does this work? What's going on over here? What's your name? Tell me about this place. Or I went to Chicago, or I went to high school, but I didn't grow up in neighborhoods with gangs in them. So I went to Chicago, like, I'm going to actually go to the neighborhoods where the gangs are and talk to people who are in gangs. So that's me going to Chicago in a very different way. So we always talk about with the show that I feel like there's got to be a sense of either emotional or physical jeopardy in the show. You know, some sort of sense of like, what's, and, and sometimes the stakes are lower. But there's still a sense of like, I don't know what this person's going to say. I'm going to ask questions that would normally make me nervous, but because we have this TV show, it doesn't make me nervous. And then on the podcast, Politically Reactive, it's the same thing about like, I know about a lot of these issues, but I really want to go deep dive. Me and my co-host, Hari Kondabolu, want to do a deep dive with somebody who is an expert or a spokesperson from that thing. So we can really get to some new vistas and really understand on a deeper level. So it's always about, for me... Very selfishly, it's about making myself a smarter person, whether it's politically reactive or United Shades of America. It's about like, I want to know about this stuff. And thankfully, I have a budget and producers who are helping me find out about these things. And then as a comedian, I want to make them entertaining. You know, it's the same thing I learned from Sesame Street as a kid. It's, it's, knowledge is more fun if you're having a good time. You carry yourself as a, as a laid back persona on television. You, know, you sound laid back in the podcast. I mean, you're you're sort of chilling there with the clan. You're you're chilling there, sort of kind of with Richard Spencer. I, I mean, how do you do that and maintain calm? A lot of times in those places, I remember that this isn't really about me. This guy said he was coming alone. Why did I believe him? I wouldn't go meet with the clan to have a conversation if there weren't TV cameras around. My voice is going to be disguised, right? Absolutely. And I'm going to let you know I'm the Imperial Wizard of the International Keystone Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Imperial Wizard of the International Keystone Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, sir. Like, and there's a guy who did his name is Daryl Davis. I think he actually literally went and talked to the Klan with no TV cameras. He just went because he felt like he needed to do that. But I wouldn't do that. Like, that's not my thing. My thing is about, like, I want to show people who watch this TV show what's going on in America outside of their comfort zone and outside of the bubble that they live in. Or I want to show people in this community what their community looks like, you know, from a different perspective. So for me, I'm talking to Richard Spencer and he's like saying, you know, I want to bathe in white privilege. There's a part of me that's like, keep talking, keep talking. So you're, yeah. so you're a fan of white privilege? Oh, yeah. I, and what, I mean, what, what do you love about white privilege? Oh, it, it looks great. Like, you know, I mean, the people are good looking and, you know, nice suits great literature. Like, yeah, I just want to bathe in white privilege, the greatest, (laughs) most awesome thing. 
It's not about me being offended by it. It's about the fact that the longer you sit here and talk, the more we get from you and the more the people get to see this out in the world. But yet you got some blowback for that interview. Do you think that people who are opposed to the likes of a Richard Spencer or the KKK are a tad too amped up to see what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, I think we are in a very particular moment. You know, when we scheduled that interview with Richard Spencer, the only reason we knew about it is because one of the like production people at United States of America was like, there's this thing happening in D.C. with this guy, Richard Spencer. Like, that's how it came across our desk. This was like in the last summer when we were putting the show together. Richard Spencer was not a nationally known figure. By the time we got there, he had bubbled up a little bit and it was post-Trump. So he was definitely, you know, in his cups, as they say. So we taped it in like November. Then it doesn't air until April. <laughs> like, so like a, a whole lot had changed. Trump was fully in as the president. And so people are seeing it from a very right now perspective. And I sort of had to sit there and just sort of accept the fact that people didn't understand that. And it wasn't going to help me to go, we taped this months ago. Did it shape any way that, you know, how you saw or looked at kind of what was going on in Charlottesville? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I was the guy who was like, me and a friend of mine, Adam Mansback, wrote a piece about like Donald Trump is on his way, America. Like, I think we wrote it in December of 2015. And all of our liberal friends were like, stop it. Ted Cruz is going to be the nominee. And so I feel like me talking to the Klan on United Shades, me talking to Richard Spencer, I'm just like always like, the racists are coming, the racists are coming. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm Black Paul Revere over here. And so for me, it's like, maybe you don't like how I'm doing this. Maybe you don't think I'm funny. But this thing is still happening in America. I didn't set any of this up. We didn't fake any of this. We're not Franken-biting people, so they say something they didn't really say. This is really a part of this country. And so whether you like how I approached it or not, you still should reckon with the fact that this is real. And I think a lot of people, when they saw the Klan episode, was this sort of sense of like, well, that's the Klan's not where they used to be. Who cares? The ideas are still here, and that's important. What, what do you say to folks who say you shouldn't give them a platform? You know, I've said this before, the words platform and normalizing are two words that got really overused in the months following the election. Because I grew up in a household where more information was better than less. I've been reading about the Klan for years before I met the Klan because I was always like, what is going on here? What's happening? I didn't feel like when I read about the Klan or watched documentaries about the Klan that in my brain I was normalizing them. <laughs> like I wasn't, I didn't go like, oh, these guys. I thought it was interesting. I, like You talked about how you shouldn't be afraid of hearing their views. It's not like their views are going to beat out your views. Or Well, a friend of mine, Nancy Armstrong Temple, pointed this out recently, that our ideas are better than theirs. And there's more people on our side. The reason why like the alt-right can't do a rally, they can't go, in Saturday we're turning out in every major city in this country to show America that we are the best. They can't do that because there's not enough of them. And so the first two times they came to Berkeley, Berkeley basically stayed indoors for the most part. But the third time they showed up, after they sort of kicked our butts twice, Berkeley and the Bay Area turned out and we way overwhelmed their numbers. And so for me, I feel like right now there's this thing that's happening. It's like a fire alarm. Hey, guys, we need to get on the streets and show these people. And the first couple of times people didn't respond to the alarm. And I feel like I was part of the alarm. And now it's like people are actually responding to the fact that, like, we have to show them and we have to show the country at large that there's just way more of us. You don't separate your, your comedy from your activism. It sounds like it's one. It's funny. I don't really see the activism as activism. <laughs> like I, you know, I just sort of, this is the stuff I like to talk about. This is the stuff I care about. This is the stuff that engages me. Would I love to have a podcast that's about the TV show Shark Tank? Yes, I would. It's just, <laughs> it ends up being lower on my priorities list. It's just like, you know, this is the stuff I think about. Like, I, and also the word activism, I just feel like I know people who are activists and that's a job. Like, it's like, just because I read a lot of medical books doesn't make me a doctor. So I feel like 
this is the only way I know how to do it. And I also know that the way I can be valuable is the way I think I can be valuable is like when me and my wife went out into Berkeley, we went out with the clergy. We went out with this guy, Pastor Michael McBride from the Way Christian Church in Berkeley and stood next to him because he's a known dude in the community. But maybe me standing next to him as the guy who's quote unquote famous, it helps get the message out, you know? Is being a comedian kind of helped make you more approachable or are you able to kind of get in to some of these conversations that us journalists makes it a little harder for us? Yes. <laughs> I think that comedians, no matter what you're talking about, we know how to read crowds. We know how to sort of read people's body language. We can be on stage and the whole audience is laughing, but you, you notice the one person in the front row whose arms are folded. We know how to connect with people. Now, it doesn't mean that we're all sort of doing it for the same reason. Sometimes we do it to make fun of that person whose arms are folded. And sometimes we do it to sort of, hey, what's going on? You OK? You know, so I think that by nature of being comics, we're really good at body language and crowd dynamics. So I think that like when we first get to the interview, I talk to people before we start rolling the cameras just to sort of go, hey, how you doing? Everything good? To let them know I'm a human being first and also make them laugh in those moments. You know, a lot of the questions you ask are obviously things that people are afraid of, but are these questions that, that people are ashamed to ask? I feel like, like, you know, we sort of call it like dumb question time is how I sort of feel about it a lot of time. It's time for some dumb questions, you know, <laughs> and they're not dumb, but they're just questions that like, usually the person you're asking is like, they know the answer through and through, and it may be a little bit boring for them to answer it sometimes. But sometimes I don't think people are ashamed to ask. They think they know the answer. For example, like Sharia law. Like <laughs> A lot of people think they know what Sharia law is and would swear in a court of law that they knew exactly what Sharia law was. But in fact, they don't know anything about Sharia law. Worse than somebody being ashamed to ask is somebody thinking they know the answer. You know, you made a statement recently that white people need to cape up. What did you mean by that? You call it caping when somebody runs to your rescue. Usually on the internet, it's where it came from. When somebody's being abused and somebody runs to their rescue on the internet to get their back. And so for me, I feel like a lot of white people, especially white people on the left, are like a bunch of Clark Kent's walking around pretending like, I don't know where Superman is. <laughs> like, 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 I haven't seen Superman. He hasn't, I haven't, you know. And at some point, it's like, dude, you're Superman. <laughs> like, like, cape up. Start rescuing people. As a white person, you have a way better shot to talk to a white Trump voter than any person of color. You're certainly around them than most people of color. And you're like, well, I don't know anybody. Yeah, you do. You know, the, the, the guy at the office you don't want to talk to, the guy at the coffee shop you see every day who's always reading the National Review or whatever. Like, there's, They are around you. And even if they are a stranger to you, you have a way better chance of going, hey, can I talk to you for a second, sir? Than if I walk up to a, a white Trump voter and go, hey, can I talk to you for a second, sir? Your skin gives you the privilege to make these connections. But the thing is, Superman doesn't save the world once and sort of just stay Clark Kent again. You have to be willing to put yourself out there regularly. What do you make of, you know, the white folks who are speaking out about the Confederate monuments? Yeah, I mean, you know, let's be clear. Heather Heyer caped up and she lost her life. But everybody is aware of the fact that a white person saying Confederate monuments are wrong, even if it's a white person who's not from one of the Confederate states, people hear it in a different way. So for white people from the South to say Confederate monuments are wrong, it means more than a black person says it because black people have been saying it forever. We just got tired of saying it and moved on to other things. It doesn't mean that white people are more powerful. It just means that like the way this country was built, white voices tend to be heard over other voices. Recently, I think his name is Ed Screen. I might be saying his name wrong, but he's, an, he's a white actor who was cast in the Hellboy reboot to play a character that he later discovered was Asian, and he just pulled out of the movie. 
people of color have been talking about whitewashing for years, where white people are cast in roles that are meant for people of color. Since the days of John Wayne playing Genghis Khan and Mickey Rooney playing an Asian guy in Breakfast at Tiffany's and the Birth of a Nation, it's been going on forever. But when a white guy does it, his Twitter post about it went viral immediately. In terms of what you're trying to accomplish with your show and your podcast and promote or at least outline understanding, have you gotten an example of someone who has watched you or heard you or changed their view or perspective? You know, I feel about this the way I feel about like music, like the song should want to change the world. If you write a song, it's fine if the song wants to change the world. But once the song is over, if the artist thinks he changed the world, then there's a problem. So for me, I'm certainly making this stuff, like whether it's my stand-up or Politically Reactive or United Shades, I'm certainly making it because I was like, everybody, be more like this. <laughs> like, like, listen to this, pay more attention, be more inclusive. Once the show airs, I'm really just hoping that I change the conversation for that moment that people watch the show. My whole goal is to make people's dinner conversation better. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's it, really. Why does it matter that, you know, black comedian is doing kind of what you're doing? I mean, what, why is that important? I don't know if I can say that it's important. <laughs> I think that it's like, it, it's important to me that I do this work. Like, I'm a comedian. Like, people sort of put all these other labels on me. And I know I'm not everybody's comedian. I, you know, I... I admire other comedians who are doing their thing. Like I'm not, I don't only like comedians who are like me. And I know that I'm not a comedian that can go anywhere and make any crowd laugh at any time, you know, and, and people on Twitter tell me that regularly. But <laughs> for me, when I start doing comedy, this is the work I got attracted to and pulled into. So it's important to me to do work that I care about, that I feel like maybe makes the world a little bit easier for people who are oppressed to walk around in, or at least lightens the load for them while they listen to me or watch me on TV or listen to Politically Reactive. And especially now that I have two daughters and I'm married, like me and my wife went to Berkeley. We sent the kids to their cousin's house because we didn't need them to be in the crowd of 4,000 people. We should be out like this when the Nazis don't show up, everybody. We should be talking out for all the oppressed people when the Nazis don't show up. Don't wait for the Nazis. Be good all the time, everybody. But in that moment, there was something about that that was like, I would hate for my kids to be like, what happened? Where were, where were you and Mama that day that that big rally happened in Berkeley? And we were like, well, we took the opportunity to go to this beautiful bed and breakfast in Sausalito. <laughs> like, it's just like... <laughs> People told us not to go to the rally. People said, you're too public. You're going to be targeted. Come out. And so a lot of people, friends of mine, activists said, maybe you shouldn't go. And it just felt like I can't not be there. So to me, it's important to me. I like the fact that people appreciate it and give me positive feedback. And when I see people who are fans of mine in the street, they really go, your work means a lot to me. But I can't sit here and say it's important. You know, we lost a politically active black comedian recently in, in, in Dick Gregory. How would you compare what he did to what you do? He had a, a much larger footprint in the movement than I have. I mean, Dick Gregory, much like Muhammad Ali, and he doesn't get credit for this, basically like took off some prime years of his career to basically become an activist. He's like, a comedian isn't doing enough. I'm going to go actually be an activist and do the work. And then he came back into comedy, but he gave up, you know, it's like Ali, he gave up some of his prime athletic years as a comedian to go do the work. So Dick Gregory is one of my prime inspirations. I got to open for him once or twice four or five years ago in New York, and he was funnier than I was that night by far, <laughs> even though he was in his late 70s. So for me, there before the grace of Dick Gregory go I, but I certainly feel like he sort of established a path that I envy, and I hope that when I'm as old as that, if I get to be of that age, that I'm half as funny as he was, but I also understand that like, I think the stakes were significantly higher when he was around than they are now, 
I have not made the choices he made. So maybe I will make that choice, but I don't know that that I would do the things he did because maybe I'm not as uh, great as he is. Kamal, thank you very much for your time. Much success in your uh, upcoming season. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dick Gregory never went to the Emmys. That already separates me right there. <laughs> Thanks again to Kamal Bell for being here, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to Majority Minority on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and hear more stories at McClatchyDC.com slash MM. The show is produced and edited by Jordan Marie Smith and Davin Coburn, and thanks to executive producer Ayanna Morali. And we'll be back soon with more Majority Minority.